And I pray that uh, you weren't too discouraged when you left this morning. And I pray that tonight we find a great deal of encouragement from God's Word. And uh, you know, we find ourselves here in the midst of a, of a, of a great passage of Scripture. Uh, perhaps one of the most uh, well-known stories in all of God's Word is what took place at the top of Mount Carmel. Remember several years ago I had the privilege of standing atop of Mount Carmel and in my mind's eyes, we rehearsed the Word of God, just uh, trying to, to imagine an entire nation surrounding this mountain, uh, up the slopes of the hill, and, and, and picturing uh, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel and the 450 prophets of Baal over to one side, and, and a man, a single man, off all alone on the other side, is standing there patiently waiting for his turn. And, uh, of course, the prophets of Baal, as we saw this morning, they could not pray fire down from heaven, because Baal is no God at all. And we find here this evening the rest of the story. And if you remember this morning, as we looked, uh, that the altar had been broken down. And there are three uh, dangers of a broken down altar. The first uh, is found in chapter 16. Uh, I apologize. I was told this morning that I had the wrong uh, passage on the, on, the, on, the, on the screen. But it's chapter 16, verses 32 and 33, where it describes that, uh, what Ahab had done, how he, how he built an altar uh, unto, unto Baal in the house that he had built to Baal and a grove that he had built to Baal. And inevitably, when we forsake the altar of God, it does not take long for that altar to break down. The altar, I do not believe the altar of God was destroyed by vandals. Uh, I, I don't believe it was destroyed by malicious intent. I believe that it was destroyed, that it, was, that it became broken down because it was never visited. And uh, it was never cared for. It was never, it, was never, it was never utilized. And so now we find... Uh, the nation of Israel halting between two opinions. And we find that the, the danger of that void that, that, God, uh, that God desires, that, that place that God desires to have in our lives, that the reason for which he, he created us to spend time with Him and to know Him and to have this real, strong, vibrant relationship with Him, if we forsake that altar... If we, if we fail to give God His rightful place, something else is going to step in and fill that void. And what filled that void in the instance of Israel was Baal worship. Idolatry. If I'm, going to, if I'm not serving God, I'm serving something else. It's either myself, it's either my family, it's my job, it's my hobbies... Whatever the case is, we begin to practice idolatry. But then another danger we saw was that our Christian life becomes unstable. And the question that, that Elijah asked in chapter 18 and verse 21, he, he asked the people saying, how, how long halt ye between two opinions? And if you remember, that word halt means to, to, be, uh, means to limp. Uh, it means to be unsettled or unstable. And a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And in our Christian lives, if we forsake that altar of God in our lives, in our hearts, our lives will be unstable. 
And then, of course, we saw the last danger of a broken down altar. That was the fact that desperation sets in. Because there's no answer. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And those prophets of Baal, they became rather desperate. They leaped upon the altar that they had constructed. They cut themselves with knives and lancets. And they cried and made a great to-do, but there was no answer. And if you're able tonight, I invite you to stand with me as we read together here the rest of the story. Beginning in verse number 30. We'll read down through verse number 40. The Word of God says, And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar, in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood, and said, Fill four barrels with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice, and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time, and they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time, and they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that Thou art God in Israel, and that I am Thy servant, and that I have done all these things at Thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that Thou art the Lord God, and that Thou hast turned uh, their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Father, we thank you for the word of God tonight, and Lord, it is our prayer that we would hear from you this evening. Uh, Lord, we need you in these moments, in these hours, God. We, we need a fresh, a fresh message from the word of God. And Lord, as we consider the importance of the altar in our lives, we pray, God, that this message would have eternal uh, implications in our, not only in our hearts and lives, but in the lives of those we know and love. And Lord, perhaps even people we've never met before. And God, we pray that you'd stir our hearts and draw us back to you. And God, help us learn to give you your proper place. And Lord, may we see what must be done in order for that to happen. And so God, we pray for your help. Lord, help me tonight as I preach, this, uh, uh, preach your word. God, may it be your word and not mine. And so, Lord, may we all be ready and receptive and willing to hear and obey uh, what the Scripture says. And so, God, give us your guidance tonight, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're in the habit of marking things in your Bibles, I'd like to draw your attention back to verse number 30. It's the verse we ended with this morning, and it's the verse we begin with tonight. 
This morning I had you circle the word altar. If you've not yet done so, would you please circle that word, the word altar. The word altar is a, is a significant word. It, it, it points to our relationship with the Lord, our access to God, and uh, the time that we spend with the Lord. We ought to give great heed, we ought to give great attention to the Word of God when it, when it speaks of this altar in our lives. The children of Israel, as has been said already tonight, had forsaken the altar and now it was broken down. This morning I had you mark that statement at the end of verse number 30, that it was broken down. Would you mark that? We saw the dangers, even reviewed those dangers briefly here tonight. But as we look ahead tonight, we find what, what Elijah did. Elijah took great care, he took great effort, and the Bible says that he repaired the altar of the Lord. Would you mark that statement? Elijah says he repaired the altar of the Lord. And tonight, maybe you're here this evening and, and you're wondering what you ought to do or what, what God would have you do in this area of a personal altar in your life. As we looked, even said this morning, all of the problems of our life are traceable. We can, they can be traced back. They can, we can track them back to the neglect of our time with God. Do you realize, it, it has been said by, by many preachers greater than me, that all of our failures are prayer failures. And, and the great need of this hour is our need to learn how to spend real quality time with the Lord. What needs to be learned today, and there's a generation of Christians that don't know how to do this, they do not know how to get a hold of God. We, we have programmed God out of everything. And, and we've substituted the essential things, such as prayer, Bible reading, meditation, memorization, we've substituted those things for programs, for schedules, and different things. And now, I believe in many instances across our, our nation and around the world, we don't have the best that God can give us. We have the best that man can manufacture. What can man manufacture but a broken down altar? The children of Israel find themselves in a place where there's a drought that had brought, been brought about because of the sin that they had committed and because of the sins that their leaders had committed. And now they're having this great confrontation the man of God, Elijah, versus the 450 prophets of Baal. It's greater than the shootout at the OK Corral. And God rained fire down from heaven. You know, interestingly enough, if you even look here, back in verse number 33 of 18, of chapter 18, as Elijah instructed the, the people to fill these barrels of water and pour them on the altar, he said in verse number three, he says, four, or fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. What great faith Elijah had. It was not on fire. Remember the deal that they had struck, they were going to put no fire under it. 
Yet Elijah says, pour the water on the burnt sacrifice. What a man of great faith. Believing God for the impossible. And God answered. What we need tonight is a fresh touch from heaven. We need the fire to fall in our lives, do we not? We need revival. We need God to do a work that we cannot manufacture. We desire God to do a work for which only He can truly receive the glory. We need the fire to fall. But the fire will never fall if we fail to give attention to the altar. We must do as Elijah did. We must learn to repair the altar of God. Christian, in your life, how is your altar? The altar, again, is a place of great significance. It's mentioned first, for the first time, the word altar is used in the book of Genesis in chapter 8. We read there this morning of how Noah built an altar when they got off the ark. And he made great sacrifice thereon, and God gave a promise it's a place where uh, everywhere Abraham traveled, he built an altar. Isaac was known for digging wells, but he too built an altar. Jacob built an altar. Uh, these, all, these men of God, when the children of Israel returned from, uh, from Babylonian uh, exile, the first thing they did is Zerubbabel, he built the altar of God. Christian, we must never forfeit God's blessing out of sheer convenience. Do you realize it is inconvenient not to spend time with the Lord? So oftentimes in our minds you think, well, I, don't have t- I don't really don't have time to do all of this, but we have time for everything else, don't we? We need to revisit the altar. We need in our own lives tonight to seek God's help in rebuilding the altar of our hearts. To rebuild that al- the altars of prayer in our lives. To rebuild the altars of Bible meditation and Scripture memorization. We need to rebuild the altars of, 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 of prayer and, and Bible study and memorization. We need to rebuild the altars of, of service and fellowship one with another. We need to learn to give God His rightful place. He's not worthy to be ignored. He deserves our utmost. And tonight, as we look here in in 1 Kings chapter 18, I I believe we find three, uh, three things you and I can do, three steps, if you would, maybe, how we can rebuild the altar, how we can repair the altar. If you need to repair your altar tonight, you need to begin where Elijah began. And that is, we must remember the promises of God. Remember the promises of God. Would you look look back in verse 31? It says, And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Notice, Israel shall be thy name. We're reminded of God's promise. God made promises to His people. God has made promises to you and me. Look back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter number 32, we find the reference here that, uh, that Elijah refers to as 
Jacob wrestles with God the night before he's to go out and, and meet his brother that he had done wrong. He had wronged Esau, and he was afraid that in return, Esau was going to take vengeance into his own hands and, and come out and, and kill him. And Jacob was a coward. Remember, he divided up all of his substance and sent, them, sent his wives and his children and all of his possessions on ahead of him. Instead of, facing the, instead of facing his brother like a man, he goes and hides behind his kids, right? Sounds like a terrorist or something. I don't know. But uh, don't take that out of context, by the way. Which is very cowardly. And that night, God comes down and has a wrestling match with Jacob. And the Word of God says that, that neither Jacob could prevail nor God could prevail. And when the sun rose, God touched uh, Jacob's thigh and, uh, and it became out of joint. And the rest of his life, the Bible says he halted on that leg. He walked with a limp, had to have a cane to get around. But in the process of all of that, God came to Jacob and he changed Jacob's name. And the Word of God says in, in, uh, in verse 28 of Genesis chapter number 32. Help if I got there. In Genesis chapter uh, 32, verse 28, the Bible says, well actually let's begin in verse 24, and Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. That's an interesting thing. That's a great confession that Jacob had just made to God. For that's truly who Jacob was wrestling with. Not a man. This is a pre-incarnate Christ. And Jacob said, my name is Jacob. You said it. The name Jacob means liar, a deceiver, or a supplanter. That's all he had ever done with his life. He had lied, he deceived, he supplanted. And finally, Jacob met his match. And in verse 28, the Bible says, and he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For, a prince hast thou, uh, for as a prince thou hast power with God, and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And God called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And Elijah reminds the children of Israel of the work of God, the promise of God. He's, he says, in verse number 31, it says, Israel shall be thy name. Who gave Israel that name? It was God Himself. He is their God. He is, they are His people. And Christians, you and I must remember, if we are going to revisit, rebuild the altar of God in our lives, we must recognize who we are. We are what we are by the grace of God. 
We think of all the great blessings that God has extended to us and, and the promises that are contained therein. But Christians, you and I, we are the beneficiaries of some very wonderful promises. Would you hold your place in 1 Kings 18 and turn in the New Testament to the book of 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter number 1, <clears throat> the Bible says this, in verse number 3, it says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called you, or called us, I'm sorry, to glory and virtue. Interestingly enough, we find that God has given us everything we need to live for Him. In verse number 4 of 2 Peter chapter number 1, the Bible says, "...whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." You and I are the beneficiaries of some great or exceeding great and precious promises. The whole of God's Word is chock full of promises. And as, I, as we consider what Elijah is saying here in, in 1 Kings chapter number 18, I'm reminded of the covenant that God made with Noah. Of these great promises that God has given to us. Look, look back in Genesis chapter number 9, please. In Genesis chapter number 9, we find the promise that, that God, and every time it rains and the sun shines through the clouds just the right way, you and I, are, are, we remember the promises of God. The world uses this, uh, this promise as something God never intended for it. This is not a representation of pride, but of the promises of God. It's not a license to do as we want. But it's a promise that God will restrain Himself from taking vengeance on us again. And the Bible says in, in chapter number 9 of Genesis, look in verse number 13, He says, God says, I, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when... When I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud. And I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. Friends, it is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. You know, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be. Yet God has made a covenant. God has made a promise. And He is withholding His judgment from us for a time. We see the promises of God. It remain in, in Genesis. Look over in chapter 12. In Genesis 12, we find the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that God made with Abram when he called him from his from his from his place in chapter 1 I'm sorry chapter 12 and verse 1 the bible says now the lord had said unto Abram get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee 
And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. There's a great promise from God. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And may I say that that covenant is also an everlasting covenant. And it's an unconditional covenant. It does not depend. Neither, none of these are conditional. God said, we are, we are evil people. And if God's not going to flood the earth again, it means it's unconditional. It's not, in other words, it's not based upon our behavior. We're thankful for the mercies of God. So the Lord's mercies were not consumed because His compassions fail not. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. But God extended this promise to, to Abram. Was Abram a perfect man? Oh no. He lied. Uh, uh, he tricked. He deceived. He disobeyed. He connived. He planned. He plotted. He stepped outside of of the realms of God's will for his life with Hagar and who bear unto him uh, Ishmael and where 90% of the world's problems stem, you know. All of these problems, this is an everlasting covenant. It's a promise from God. Look in 2 Samuel, please. I'm also reminded of the promise that God made with David. In 2 Samuel, chapter number 7, we find the Davidic covenant. We saw the Noetic covenant, we saw the Abrahamic covenant, but now we find the Davidic covenant. And the Bible says in chapter 7, beginning in verse number 12, it says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. We've got another everlasting covenant. And may I tell you tonight that God has made has kept his word, hasn't he? I'm also reminded of the covenant that God the Father made with God the Son. When Jesus laid down His life on the cross, rose again from the grave, securing salvation for all who will come to Him by faith. God made a promise. He that cometh to God, He will in no wise cast out. Because of what Jesus Christ had done, you and I are the beneficiaries of this new covenant. Look at the, what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter number 9. Friends, nothing, will, nothing should make you want to rebuild the altar in your life more than the promises of God. 
We look here in the work of, of the testator in this New Testament, this new, uh, this new covenant that God, that God established. In Hebrews chapter number 9, in, uh, let's begin here in verse number 13. He says, uh, actually let's begin in verse 11. It says, but Christ being, uh, being come in high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. We have here another everlasting covenant that God has made. And the Bible says in verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and of goats... And of the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified through the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this cause, He is, a, he is the mediator of the New Testament. Would you mark that statement in your Bible? The mediator of the New Testament? And by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament. In other words, he paid the penalty for our sin. What, how do we know what sin is? Well, sin is the transgression of the law. That's the, that's the first covenant, right? Which are called, might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Would you mark that statement? The promise of eternal inheritance. What is this? It's salvation. You and I, we have salvation. It says, for, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept, uh, to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the, of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things uh, are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission." It says, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that He should offer Himself often, uh, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of uh, with blood of others, and then must he often have uh, suffered since the foundation of the world? But now, look in verse twenty six. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away the sin, uh, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the ju- uh, the judgment. So Christ, verse twenty eight, was offered once. Uh, well, I'm sorry, was once offered to bear the sins of many, and, uh, and unto them uh, that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. This new promise, this new covenant, this new testament, Christians, this is the promise for us. Yes. 
You and I, we have salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And God has made the promise. Would you look back in John chapter number 6, please? In John chapter number 6, in verse number 36, we find this great promise. Actually, it's verse 37. In verse 37 of John 6, the Bible says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. What a great promise. You can come to Christ by faith, have your sins washed away, have your sins forgiven, have the Spirit of God come to live in your heart, be made a child of God, have the Spirit of God in your heart crying, Abba, Father. He gives you this promise that He's never going to leave you and He's never going to forsake you. It is this eternal inheritance. This, this so great salvation. And Christian, if the altars are broken down in your heart, remember the promises of God. It'll stir your heart. And as the children of Israel gathered around this, this altar that had been repaired with, with the twelve stones, each stone representing one of the tribes of Israel, unto whom the Lord has said, Thy name shall be called. He reminded them of God's goodness. He reminded them of God's blessings. He reminded them that God is faithful. They had been. They'd been messing around with some other God. But the Lord, He is the God. And He's a jealous God. And you and I ought to reserve the, very, the place of utmost significance in our lives, that place of preeminence in our lives. We ought to give that to the Lord. Because He's worthy. You and I, Christians, you and I can enjoy the altar of God because of the promise that Christ has made to us. The salvation that we have in Jesus Christ is the only reason you and I can have a relationship with Him. He's the only reason why I can pray to God and have my prayers answered. He's the only reason why I have hope. He's the only reason why I have life. He's the only reason for everything. You know, all of, our, all of the bad things in our lives can be, are traceable, aren't they? They're traceable either to my neglect of the altar or someone else's neglect of the altar. But may, may I also tell you that every good thing in my life is traceable. The Bible says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights. Friends, rest in the promises of God. Notice the second lesson we learned tonight. As we look back in 1 Kings chapter number 18, the second lesson we learned tonight is that we must, sacri- uh, we must saturate ourselves with God's word. You might look there and say, Pastor, I see no reference to God's Word in 1 Kings 18. Well, I see water. <laughs> and in the, word of, in the Bible, God's Word is often used or described 
as being water. What's the significance of water? Well, wherewithal shall the young man cleanse his way? But by taking heed thereto according to thy word. The Bible describes in Ephesians the washing of water by the word. We've got to be made clean. We've got to be made right. We've got to be so full of the scriptures that we know how to use the altar to begin with. Look back in 1 Kings 18. In verse 33, the Bible says, And he put wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four barrels with water. Where did they get water from? There was no water anywhere. Well, at the bottom of the base of Mount Carmel, there's the brook. He talks about it here in verse number 4, the brook, the brook uh, Kishon. It's there that after all of this transpired that, that Elijah took all 450 of those prophets of Baal and killed them. <laughs> there's, a, there's a statue at the top of Mount Carmel. I can show you a picture of it. I have it in my office of Elijah holding a dagger. <laughs> uh, you know. It's quite interesting. It's a neat place. But at the base of that hill, the base of that mountain, I believe they had to hike down, get these four barrels full of water, bring them all the way back up. Go down, back up, go down. They did it three times. Four barrels, that's 12 barrels of water. That's a substantial amount of water. I can't imagine pushing those things or carrying those things, dragging those things, rolling those barrels up the side of that mountain. There's a bunch of rocky crags sticking out. You know, it's not a, it's not a gently rolling hill. Okay, it's a rather steep incline. But Elijah had them do it not once, not twice, but three times. And verse 35 says, "And the water ran." round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel. Consider the importance of God's word in your life. Consider the necessity of spending time with God's Word. This past week, I don't know how many times I've made this statement in passing or in different meetings with people, but we want to be spiritual people, don't we? You can't be without God's Word. You cannot be spiritual unless you are scriptural. And no matter how much I, I, I long for God and go and seek to repair this altar, it is without, it's a waste of time. If I fail to spend time in God, in, with God and His Word. Look in Psalm 37, please. Psalm number 37. We find a very familiar passage of Scripture. The Bible says in verse 1, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut, off, cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. 
So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be, set, thou shalt be fed. But in verse 4, the Bible says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. How can I know what God's will is? How, how, how can my will be brought in line with God's will? How can I desire the things that God desires? We find the necessity of God's Word in our lives. You realize that God's Word reshapes our thinking. I don't want you to experiment with this. Just trust me. Because I want you to read your Bible. Don't neglect reading your Bible. But you can go a month reading your Bible every day and God can give great growth. He can, he can radically transform your life. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You, you can be transformed, but the neglect of God's Word in your life for even a short period of time will bring such great regression. You lose so much ground. You forfeit your Christ-likeness. Why? Because you're not spending time with the Lord. Iron sharpens iron. You know, it's important for good godly fellowship. We can help one another. But it is vitally important that we have fellowship with God. That we spend time with the Lord. Your friends rub off on you. Why don't you allow God to rub off on you? Just imagine what God would do in your life if you, if you rebuilt this altar and gave as much attention to the Word of God as you do your most enjoyable of hobbies. Imagine the difference that would be made in your life. Friends, we need God's Word. Saturate yourself with God's Word. Sometimes you think, well, how could the fire fall? How could, how could that burnt offering uh, ignite? Have you ever tried to start a fire when it's wet? It's impossible. Talk about frustration. You could get a spark going. You might get a little bit of a coal going, but quickly goes away. But Christians, what we're seeking for is the impossible, isn't it? Again, I don't want the best man can manufacture. I want the best that God can give. And the best that God can give is the fire that falls from heaven and consumes my life. And if my life is going to be consumed by God, it first has to be saturated by His Word. Saturate yourself with God's Word. Notice the final lesson we learn. As we seek to repair the altar, we find in verse 36, 37, 38, and 39, and it all points to the motivation. 
What is your motivation? Our motivation ought to be that of God's glory alone. We ought to seek only the glory of God. It's a hard one though, isn't it? You know that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away with the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. What do we need above all? We need a touch from heaven, don't we? We need the fire to fall. But you know what God is most interested in? His glory. So oftentimes we pray for things so we can consume it upon our lust, right? As James describes. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss. You may consume it upon your own lust. We want what we want because it's what we want. And we think it will satisfy our flesh. But the Bible says we're to make no provision for the flesh. What God desires is His glory. And you know what glorifies God? A repaired altar that's visited with pure motive. Let's read together here in verse 36 of 1 Kings 18. The Bible says, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God. Notice what he said, that thou art God. That you're not a God, but thou art God. In other words, you're God alone. There's nobody else. There's not a second option here. You are God alone. That you are God in Israel. And that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me. That this people may know, notice again, that thou art the Lord God. Notice the, the significance, the Lord God. All capital letters, the name Lord. It's Jehovah God. Remember, he's referring back again to the promises of God. He's Jehovah God, the covenant-making God, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. You are the Lord God. And that thou hast turned their heart back again. The motivation. But you might look in there and you might say, well, Elijah prayed for himself, didn't he? I mean, in verse number 36, he says, And that I am thy servant, and I have done all these things at thy word. Well, what about that? What does that mean? Is he trying to put himself up there on a pedestal? Oh, no, no, no. If you're reading it that way, you're reading it wrong. He's saying that he, no, he does not want any of the credit for the things that had just taken place. Those three and a half years of, of, of no rain, of no precipitation of any kind, he didn't want any credit from that. He said, I'm just the Lord's messenger. And, it, and all of these things happened according to, to his word. wasn't about Elijah. It never was. 
And Christians, we must be careful because it's not about us either. Do you realize that your life isn't about you? Life is not about me. I mean, it is Father's Day, so this day is about me. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Maybe it's a little. But life isn't about me. Is it? Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do you know what our lives ought to be? Our lives ought to be billboards. Our lives ought to be those neon signs with the arrows that flash. But they ought to flash and point to the Lord. Elijah said, I I just want my life, Lord, to be used by you. To turn the hearts of the people back to you. It's not about me, so I don't want anybody to follow me. That's why I'm to follow you, Lord. The motivation was not to build some great and glorious kingdom or some elaborate following. It was to point people to Christ. It was to point people to God. And Christians, therein lies the glory. God tells us that He won't share His glory with anybody. As we close tonight, I want you to look with me, please, in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, several years ago, I worked hard to memorize this chapter of God's Word. And it quickly became uh, a passage of great significance in my life. Paul's writing, and there's a lot of schism going on in the church at Corinth. He addresses that. He says, Is Christ divided in verse 13? Was Paul crucified for you, or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? You know, there's a great schism. And he goes on, he describes those that God calls. And basically he calls the nobodies. But in verse 30 of chapter 1, 1 Corinthians, well, look in verse 29. Why does he do this? Well, that no flesh should glory in His presence. It's not about you, friend. Your life's not about you. It's not about what you perceive that you've done. It doesn't matter what you think you can offer. It doesn't matter what you think you have contributed. It's not about you. That no flesh should glory in His presence. 
But amazingly, in verse 30, we find that everything we long for, we are in Christ. He says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and, re- and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Glory in the Lord. Take delight in what Christ has done for you. You know, when I live my life for the Lord, I'm, I'm less offended by people, just to be honest with you. When we live our lives for the Lord, it doesn't really matter what other people think. Because I'm not living for you. I want you to like me, but it's not the end of the world if you don't. It's about the Lord. Pointing people to Jesus Christ. And as Elijah rebuilt, as he repaired that altar, he said the people would know that thou art God in Israel. Thou art God. You know what happened? The fire of God fell. And you know what the people said? The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Before they were silent. Now they speak. Why? Because he sought only the glory of God. Christian's the altar. How's your altar tonight? Is it broken down? Is your life filled with idolatry? Is your Christian life unstable? Are you desperate because of no answer from God? Then repair the altar. Remember the promises of God. Saturate yourself with the Word of God. And seek only the glory of God. And Christians, if we do that, I believe with all of my heart that the fire of God will fall. I believe we can have revival. I believe that God will do a work. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to see that. With their heads bowed and their eyes closed.